0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's a blessing to be with you all again, to be with God's people in his word, singing praises to him, and just to think that the Lord is with us this morning as we gather and uh, the angels of God are looking into what's happening here today, and uh, they are in amazement at every gathering of God's people, uh, at the manifold wisdom of God and all that he has done to save us. So I want to wish all of you a happy new year, and I pray that all of you had a wonderful Christmas with your families. Uh, some traveled, I'm sure some didn't, some got COVID. Uh, it's just different for all of us <laughs> this, this Christmas, uh, talking with people. A number of people sick in our church, and uh, <clears throat> I guess that's just kind of the way it is these days, but there are, we, we actually have the kids in here with us today, so That will, I guess, become increasingly abundantly clear. Uh, We praise God for them, though. We're so grateful uh, for their little voices, their little hearts, uh, and uh, even the tiniest ones. We're grateful to have them in here. Uh, You know, it's it's amazing that the kids. It's sometimes it's not so much what they are hearing and processing mentally, uh, but it's just growing up seeing the people of God worship. Uh, There's something about them seeing God's people uh, praising Him that just, uh, just moves them, I think, and moves them towards Christ. So they may not understand anything uh, that they hear, even at, at the very youngest ages. They may not understand much of what they hear, uh, but they are watching their parents praise God. They're, they're seeing uh, their parents sit under preaching, and, and all of that meant to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. So it's good to be here, it's good to be back, and I want to thank Trey for filling in at the drop of a hat last Sunday while I was sick. Uh, I'm grateful for him as a Christian brother, as one of the pastors here, Uh, and as he said, he was actually scheduled to preach today, Um, so the Lord had worked it out that he had already done quite a bit of his prep work. Going into last Sunday, not to say that he didn't have quite a bit to do between uh, nine o'clock on Christmas night and uh, Sunday morning, but uh, he had already done <coughs> quite a bit of his prep work uh, for in preparation for preaching today. So it, it it just is it's wonderful to see how God looks out for us. You know, God looks out for all of us, uh, and as we think about moving from Christmas into a new year. Uh, We can all think about the many ways that God has provided for us, how he's taken care of our needs, and how he just works in our circumstances, takes care of us, takes care of our families, and he takes care of our church. So we praise him for that. It reminds me of catechism question number five, why ought you to glorify God? And the answer is because he made me and takes care of me. Uh, How easily we just forget these basic truths that we learn as children. He made me, and He takes care of me. So just delight today in the fact that God takes care of you. Uh, He will take care of you no matter what you're going through. He takes care of all of us. Uh, And we know that we live in a broken world, a fallen world where we get sick, and ultimately we're going to die, all of us. Uh, But God is going to see us through all of those things uh, and see us into His celestial city. So, if you would, please go ahead with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 21. Romans 15, 14 to 21. Today, we officially hit the last stretch of Paul's letter to the Romans, and here in this last stretch, going from chapter 15, verse 14, all the way to the end of the book, we get... Paul's ministry, his travels, his various greetings. We get this very long list of greetings uh, with, uh, with a long list of names in chapter 16. But that's where we are. We're, we're at the end of the letter. Paul is, has wound down his teaching, and now he gets into uh, some personal information for his readers where we see the relationship between the writer and the readers come back into view. With the end of verse 13, we've simultaneously finished three sections. And so if you like to kind of keep track of the structure of the book, you know, we've spent all this time in Romans, so it is good to think about how is Romans uh, laid out? What is the structure of the book? Well, with verse 13 of chapter 15, we've simultaneously finished these three sections. So first, we finished the last teaching section. So, the last teaching section runs from 14.1 to 15.13, and it is a call to unity despite differences. And so, Paul teaches in that section, as we've been in for a a little while now, about the weak and the strong, those uh, matters of conscience, particularly in a Jewish context, the context of observing these these Jewish uh, aspects of the law, these, these ceremonies. Uh, and these aspects of the dietary laws, Paul is dealing with some of the differences that exist within the Roman church on those issues. And so it's given us the opportunity to think about unity in the midst of our own differences. As I said before, you can't do a bunch of one-to-one correspondences really, because what's going on there in the first century is unique to the coming out of Judaism. Nonetheless, we recognize that we too have differences, right? And in the midst of those differences, the Lord values our unity together, our love for one another, our sensitivity to one another's consciences, and our desire to see the building up of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's where we've been, the last major chunk of teaching, 14.1 to 15.13. So we've recently just finished that. Secondly, we finish the practical portion of the letter. So from chapter 12, verse 1 to 15, 13, we have Paul's practical instruction. practical instruction for gospel living. And so you notice that when we came to chapter 12, verse 1, Paul was talking about living unto the Lord as a sacrifice, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And then we got all of this very practical instruction. Chapter 12, uh, this long list of instructions. Chapter 13, how we relate to the government, how we walk as children of the day. And then into chapter 14 with the question of unity amidst differences. And so we've also finished the section on Paul's practical instructions. And then finally, or thirdly, we finished the body of the letter as a whole. So you'll remember going way, 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 way back to March of 2020, or I guess the the very end. We started Romans in um, February, the end of February in 2020. And you'll remember back uh, almost two years ago when we entered into chapter 1, verse 16. Well, that's when the, the body of the letter begins. Paul gives all this greeting material up, chapter 1, 1 to 15. And then in chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. That was the beginning of the body of the letter. And we've just finished the body of the letter with chapter 15. Verse 13 Paul's teaching on the gospel. That's what Romans is about. And I like the way John Stott puts it as we move from verse 13. <clears throat> so listen to what he writes. "The Great Exposition, chapters 1 through 11, and the great Exhortation, 12:1 to 15:13, are over. So the Great Exposition and the Great Exhortation are over. But he has not finished yet. Paul intends to return to the question of his relations with the Roman church, which he began to open up earlier, that is, back in chapter 1. And so Paul's not done. Paul could have finished. He was done with the the body of his letter. He was done with the teaching. He's taught about the gospel. He's brought out the implications of the gospel for personal life, for community life, for life out in society. He could have just stopped with a, a nice little doxology there. But Paul goes on to reconnect himself with his Roman Readers. And we're going to go on to see more why it is that Paul is so concerned to connect with these readers because it involves the next stage of Paul's ministry. So here in chapter 15, we sort of pick up where we left off back in chapter 1. So in some ways you could think about all of the letter as a, a big parentheses. We're going back to chapter 1 verse 15 as we come to our passage for today. So the title for the sermon is The Apostles' Ministry. And if you would go ahead and stand with me, we're going to read God's Word together. I'm going to do something a little different today for our reading. We're actually going to read chapter 1, not all of chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. And then I'm going to immediately go from that to chapter 15 verses 14 to 21, to our passage for today, so that you can kind of see uh, where Paul has left off in his greeting material in connecting with these Roman readers. So this is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for God's people. So chapter one, verses eight to 15. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last (laughs) succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, To strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he launches in to that gospel in chapter 1, verse 16. Well, now let's pick up with our passage for today. Chapter 15, verses 14 to 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, In the priestly service (coughs) of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So a little bit of insight into how Paul, under, Paul sees his ministry Uh, how Paul sees uh, his apostolic ministry. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, ask that he would give us all insight into his word, that he would illuminate his word. You know, the Spirit (coughs) is the one who inspired the Scriptures. He's also the one who illuminates the Scriptures, and he's the one who opens up the hearts of people to be impacted by the Scriptures. And so we're desperately this morning, I know I am, desperately as I preach, and all of us as we understand and as we are open to what the Lord would do through His Word, uh, we are dependent, desperately dependent on the Holy Spirit. So let's ask for His blessing and let's ask for His powerful work among us. Our Father in heaven, we come before You uh, humbly and yet boldly. God, we thank You that we have You as our Father. We thank you that you are Abba. You care for us beyond the ways that we uh, could ever conceive of caring for our own children. Lord, you love us incomparably. You love us incomprehensibly, Lord. It is beyond our, our fathoming how much you love us in Jesus Christ. You have made us sons and daughters. You Call Jesus our older brother, our elder brother, and you say that we will reign with Christ. God, these are truths that just are beyond our understanding and beyond our deep, true appreciating, even, Lord. We we fall f- so far short of appreciating and giving you thanks for these things that we have in Jesus, for all the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we take this moment now, Lord, to thank you. We thank you for the riches of your word, that even in material like this where we get just description of, of uh, Paul's own ministry and what he's about, and, and it's, it's very kind of on the ground, just uh, c- kind of distant from us even. It has to do with Paul and these Christians, and, and Lord, it just uh, it can seem distant obscure but lord we we thank you that it is near to us because your spirit uses these words as he does with all of scripture to build us up in in encouragement to build us up in in holiness to build us up in love and faith and hope so god we pray that that would happen this morning that your spirit would guide us to understand your word to apply it to our own hearts lord that your spirit would prick us at our at the places where we are the weakest, the places where we are the blindest, and show us our sin. Show us uh, the ways we are not being faithful to you, not being obedient to you. God, help us to uh, glorify you through our obedience and through our sanctification. Would you do this work among us today, Father, we pray. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. So in Romans 15 verses 14 to 21, Paul returns to the topic of his ministry. His ministry is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he explains three things to his readers. These are going to be our three points for today. Uh, As Paul reflects on his apostolic ministry, his uh, (coughs) ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, he explains these three things to his readers. So here they are. First, his piercing words. And for that, we'll look at verses 14 to 16, his previous work, verses 17 to 19, and his pioneering way, verses 20 to 21. So these will be our three points this morning, if you'd like to take notes. Uh, Once again, I just tell you, these are just ways to help us understand the structure of what's going on. The, The title is meant to give us the main idea of this passage, what this passage is about, and then these are, I see them as stepping stones or rungs on a ladder, ways that we are able to understand uh, this main idea of what's going on here in the text. So let's look first at his piercing words. That's the first thing that Paul explains to his readers. And for that, we're going to look at 14 to 16. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So what are Paul's Roman readers going to think after reading this long letter. This is quite a long letter of Paul. You know, we think of Paul's letters, we have the longer ones, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Romans, but we also have those shorter ones, you know, uh, Philippians, and Galatians, Ephesians, but even shorter letters like Philemon or Titus. So we've got all of these shorter letters of Paul, but we also have these long ones, and Paul has written the Romans a rather Long one. What will they think after reading this long letter? And keep in mind that it would have been read at once before all. So the the letter would have been (coughs) delivered. Excuse me. Would have been delivered. And when it was delivered, it would have been read collectively in front of all, and all would have taken it in at the same time. So it would have been quite an earful for those early uh, readers. Some of them know Paul. But he has never been to this church. He says that in chapter 1 at the very beginning. He's never been there to this church, although many of them, I would say many, but, but maybe not most, know Paul, as we see from chapter 16. He was not responsible for planting this church, and he has not gone there to strengthen it. So what would they have thought after reading Paul's instructions, warnings, rebukes, and exhortations, his all of his admonishments and everything else that we have read in these 15 chapters so far, what would his readers have thought? Written by Paul who has did not plant the church and has never been there. Well, obviously Paul can't read their minds. He He cannot know for certain what they'll be thinking. But he does anticipate how his words will be received. And once again, this is just an illustration of Paul's sensitivity. We talked about the sensitivity of Christians in chapter 14 and 15 how Christians are to be thinking about one another's hearts, that that's something that defines uh, what it looks like to be a believer, is that we're not just living, you know, as external people, just bouncing against each other, looking only at the outside, but we are to be thinking about the perceptions and the thoughts and the hearts and the consciences of those we relate to, of those within the body of Christ. And that's what we see Paul doing here. He anticipates how his words will be received by his readers. And he does here openly recognize that he has written very boldly to them. Uh, He says it, I've written boldly to you, in fact, rather boldly or very boldly. He says this, I think, for two reasons. First, his teaching has been rather strong in several places. You know, one of the things that scholars do when they try to understand who the audience is, is they go into the book and they look for little clues to try to see what's going on in the background. Well, some letters are really simple to do that with, like 1 Corinthians. You know what's going on. Paul even says, these are some issues you wanted me to speak to, so here they are. And Paul identifies some of the problems going on in the church in Corinth. We find the same thing as Paul writes to the Galatians. And then very personal things going on as Paul writes to the Philippians about uh, their, their help for him in his ministry, in his work. But it's not always the case that you can read parts of a letter and know exactly what's going on in the background. So for example, Romans chapter 14 and 15 we do have the sense that what's going on there in the church in Rome is there is a little bit of judging going on and a little bit of despising going on on this issue of the weak and the strong. But you could over-inflate that and come away thinking that the church in Rome is just all messed up. They've got all these internal divisions. They've got all these internal factions. And they're just arguing and so forth with one another. There are many places where Paul has written to his these Roman readers, and one could come away thinking that the church in Rome is quite messed up because Paul is saying these things to them. He's written very boldly in several places. He has given them strong words that pierce and sting the heart. Secondly, he has written all of this to them as one not having any formal connection to The church there. So he says, "I've written to you very boldly," and I think he's saying that because of some of the things he said, some of his piercing, stinging words, but also because he's writing all of these things with these stinging words to a church he hasn't even been to. So he has been bold in these two ways, and here he wants to do a little more to build a bridge with his readers. He wants to give the rationale for his very bold words. And he does this in three ways. So these are just some quick subpoints you can write down if you would like. He assures, he explains, and he supports. That's how he gives the rationale for his piercing words. So first, he assures. <clears throat> he assures them <clears throat> that he has a high perception of them. As believers, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. (laughs) This is the exact opposite of what he says to the Galatians. He says to the Galatians, I'm wondering if I have labored among you and for you in vain. And that's the exact opposite of what he says Here, he has confidence in their maturity. He calls them my brothers and assures them that he has a high opinion of their spiritual maturity. The way they treat one another. He talks about their goodness, their knowledge of the truth, and their ability to instruct one another in the truth. So so really, collectively, he understands that these Christians are treating one another well on the whole. They are upright and good and kind in their conduct with one another. That they have a robust, deep understanding of the gospel, of the truth that Paul has laid out, of justification by faith and the confidence that we have in life and life in the spirit that we are no longer condemned of God's purposes regarding Jews and Gentiles, of the practical instruction in how we are to live, of the unity among brothers for the glory of God. All the things that he's taught Throughout this letter, he's confident that they understand these things and that they're even able to instruct one another in these gospel truths. This really sounds a lot like chapter 1, verse 8, where he begins, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, they have famous faith. These are Uh, The Romans, they've come to faith in Christ. They have a stable faith. They have a mature faith. And that is being proclaimed everywhere. Paul has heard about the faith and the strength of the Christians in Rome. And here he assures them that he believes that about them. He thinks that about them. Yes, I've spoken very boldly to you. But understand this. I have a high opinion of you all as believers. Secondly, he explains He explains that his teaching is a reminder. He says, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Not because of their inherent deficiency, but because of their need to be reminded. He's encouraging them on those portions of teaching that have most stung you, that have made you feel most convicted, that have, Perhaps made you think that I think that you're a kind of a messed up church falling into error, falling into ungodliness in any kind of big mass way. Know this I've written these things to you to remind you. I've written these things as a reminder. And this work of reminding was an important part of the apostolic ministry. We see this with various apostles. So let me just read you a few from the different apostles. So Paul, again in 1 Corinthians 15, 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Don't forget. I must remind you we see it with peter in second peter 1:12 therefore i intend always to remind you of these qualities <coughs> though you know them and are established in the truth that you have In other words, Peter's saying, I'm not going to stop reminding you of these things, the things he's just said. I'm not going to stop reminding you of these things because I want to constantly put them and keep them before you. And then we get the same kind of idea by the Apostle John, 1 John 2, 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. You already know the truth, and I want to remind you of that very truth that is in you. And I think this, as we just pause for a moment and consider the implications of this, I think it tells us <coughs> that we constantly need to return to the basics. You know, we never outgrow the basics of the Christian life, we never outgrow the basics of the gospel, we never outgrow the basics of justification by faith alone that uh, we have nothing to boast about because we are justified by grace alone through Christ alone we we never outgrow the need to be reminded that because we've been crucified with Christ because we've been buried with him and raised to newness of life we ought to walk as Christ walks we never outgrow the, the fact that we have been filled with the Spirit, that, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and now we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we live with great confidence in what is to come, future glory. We never outgrow the need to understand the, the God's purposes in redemptive history as God has been unfolding his purposes from the very beginning, but particularly what God has been doing with Jews and Gentiles, we never outgrow the need to understand these things. And we never outgrow the need to live upright, godly lives in this present age, in this present evil age. Lives that reflect Christ. Lives that show the power of the Spirit. Lives that demonstrate our regard for and respect for those in the world and our love, our mutual love for one another within the church. These things constantly need to be put before us. So in some respects, Romans is, you could say, one of the most profound letters in the New Testament, the most profound books or writings in the New Testament. And in other respects, you could say, it's basic stuff. It's basic stuff about which we constantly need to be reminded. We never outgrow the gospel in these implications for life. I think this this idea of Paul reminding his readers also tells us that much of our own instruction will be reminding others. You know, as we're discipling one another, as we're leading ministries or involved in ministries, a lot of what we're going to be doing is reminding people of things that we desperately need to hang on to. And of course, this obviously applies to our parenting. And any time you have to remind someone of, of something, it requires patience. And we all know that as parents, we have to constantly remind our children of many, 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 many things, and that requires of us much patience. But here we just see the relationship between reminding and instructing. And Paul is keen to keep these great truths constantly in front of his readers. And by the way, going back to that second Peter quote, that's right before Peter is going to die. And Peter's he, he knows he's going to die soon. Peter's at the end of his life and he's, what is he doing? He's reminding and reminding and reminding. So Paul explains, he assures, he explains. And then finally, he supports, Paul supports He supports his very bold words with his role, his office as the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He supports his very bold words with this work that he must carry out and that he has been called to do. The one big thing to notice here is all this priestly language, all this temple language, minister, priestly service, offering, acceptable, sanctified. Paul has appropriated the the sacrificial system. He's appropriated all the, 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 the system of holiness, of going to God, of approaching God in his holiness, of making offerings to God. He wants to bring all that imagery before his readers. And what he's saying is that his work is a priestly work. Paul has written very boldly to the Romans because God has graciously given him this role As minister of Christ to offer the Gentiles to God as a priestly offering. Just think about that. Imagine what Paul is saying. Paul sees his job as the apostle to the Gentiles, as one who goes out into the Mediterranean world preaching the gospel so that he can present to God the Gentiles as an offering. That, that in his gospel work, those who are transformed, those who are changed, he's, he presents to the Lord as an offering. Let me just say that, this to us. Do we think about all the, the things we do in ministry? Because here's the thing. You, we all know from Ephesians 4 that, that those who are leader, leaders within the church are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So who does the ministry in the church? Point at yourself. All of us should be pointing at ourselves because we together do the work of the ministry. The saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. And as we, as the saints, carry out the work of the ministry, we see here that we are offering everything that we do and every life that we touch and every person we disciple and every person that we evangelize, we are offering those people to the Lord as a sacrifice from our hearts, as an offering to our God. Do we think about our work within the local church in that way? Do we think about all the lives that we touch, all the people that we might be encouraging or making meals for or sending texts to or giving a call to or, or watching kids for or whatever the case might be, are we thinking about these things as an offering unto the Lord? Are we just sort of doing them because maybe we feel an obligation or because we're just mindlessly going about doing it? Paul understood that all that he was doing was to present those whom he administered to as an offering To the Lord. Paul sees all of this as God's gift and as something belonging to Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the one making it acceptable and holy unto the Lord. So you see the triune God at work here. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, even here in Paul's language. What is behind Paul's work? It is the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the holy spirit. Paul has written boldly because he has the right and even the commission to do so. That's what Paul is saying. I have written to you boldly not because of your deficiency, let me assure you, to remind you, let me explain, but also because this is precisely what God has commissioned me to do. I am offering Gentiles unto the Lord as the apostle to the Gentiles as a sacrifice, sanctified, made acceptable by the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women. This is what Paul is doing. This is how Paul sees his work. So we've seen his piercing words, but now we come to his previous work. <coughs> For that, let's look at verses 17 As we saw back in chapter 1, Paul wants his Roman readers to know how badly he has wanted to come and visit them. Paul talked about, you remember then, a longing. It was interesting we were going through that while we were not having services as between March and June when we weren't having services and and I can remember reflecting on that, you know, the longing that Paul had to be with the Christians there in Rome, and, and how we had a longing to be together as a local church, a very odd thing to not be gathered for three months. We had a, a longing to be back together. Well, Paul has expressed that to these readers, his longing to be with them, to visit them, but he hasn't been able to. He's been incredibly busy. And here he wants to explain what he's been doing all this time. He wants to explain his previous work, but he does this as an expression. Of praise to God. He has just finished describing his priestly role as an apostle, and this moves him to glory in Christ's work. Now, notice this: you could mistakenly, as you read the very first, uh, at the very beginning of of this section, you could mistakenly think that Paul is boasting in his own achievements, that Paul is glorying or boasting in his own. Work, but that's not at all what Paul is doing. Paul is boasting, as he says here explicitly, in Christ's achievements. He's just said that it was a gift of grace to him. All that Paul had was from God's grace. And let me say this to you and to myself all that we have is a gift of God's grace. Nothing that we accomplish no amount of growth that we experience in the Christian life, uh, no one who comes to the Lord under our discipleship or under our ministry or anything like that or grows in the Lord is to be ascribed to us. It is all from the grace of God. And no one understood that better than Paul. And that was by Christ's intention. Because no one accomplished more than the apostle Paul. In fact, we can look back all throughout church history and those uh, most illustrious theologians, most of them, many of them will say that their hero is the Apostle Paul. So even those who lived longer than Paul or who maybe preached more sermons than Paul or wrote more things than Paul were influenced so heavily by Paul. And so it was, it was Christ's work in Paul to remind him, given the fact that he was going to do so much for the Lord, to remind him how everything was from grace. It was Christ's work it was Christ's work through Paul, not Paul's work. And an understanding of grace pushes us upward in praise. You know, you can understand how Much you don't really understand grace by how much pride or boasting you're carrying around in your own heart. By anything that you accomplish. Any growth that you've experienced in the Christian life. So if you find yourself frequently having these pat yourself on the back kind of thoughts, Understand that that should show you the extent to which you don't understand God's grace. It should cause you to fall on your face before God. And to say, Lord, give me a deeper understanding of this grace through Christ. Grace pushes us upward in praise. It never lifts us up in ourselves. Paul will speak only of what Christ has accomplished through him. Might that be said of all of our lives? That we would speak only of what Christ has accomplished through us for his glory. So what has Christ done? Well, Paul explains it. He has brought the Gentiles (coughs) to obedience. Christ, through Paul's gospel preaching, has brought the Gentiles to obedience. Notice how faith is described here in obedience terms. You would expect Paul to say, brought the Gentiles to faith. We use that language, right? He came to faith. She came to faith. When did you come to faith? But it's interesting here that Paul has synonymous with coming to faith. He has this notion of coming to obedience. Coming to obey the Christ. Now this tells us two really important things. First, it tells us what it looks like to have faith. Okay, So just cast aside all those sentimental, fluttery, superficial definitions of faith that you have in your mind and replace all of that with the word obedience. We know that. How often do we read in those early chapters of the Bible in Genesis from both Noah and Abraham, in particular, these men of faith, we read these descriptions constantly, and they did what the Lord said. And Jesus said in his farewell discourse, he said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. If if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Don't talk about your faith in Christ if you don't obey him as Lord. There is no faith in Christ apart from submission to him as master and Lord. To believe in Christ is to obey Christ. It is to fall on our faces before him as the exalted king. By Paul using this kind of language, it tells us the nature of saving faith. But it also tells us something incredible about Jesus. It reminds us of Genesis 49, 10. Remember those words Jacob gave to his son Judah. And he talks about the future king who will come from Judah's line. And we learn later through David's line. And this is what we get early on in the Bible, Genesis 49, 10. To him shall be the obedience Of the peoples. I can't help but to think that Paul just has these words pulsating in his mind, just bouncing around in his mind, that as Paul is running around the Mediterranean, as Paul's carrying out his ministry, as Paul is getting beaten and getting made fun of and getting rejected, imprisoned, all kinds of things. Stoned nearly to death. All these things are happening to Paul. He's just amazed that God in his grace, the God who made the stars in his grace has called Paul, Paul constantly, me, me, called Paul, former persecutor of Christians, a diaspora Jew living out away from Jerusalem, that God has called Paul through his ministry, to see to the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10 when Jacob said to Judah, prophetically, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to him, to your descendant, will be the obedience of the nations, the ethne, the Gentiles, the peoples. What an amazing view of Christ we get as the nations come flooding in and fall on their faces before Mashiach Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the King of Kings, the promised Deliverer, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's how Paul sees his work. That's what Paul sees that he is doing So how has Christ done this through Paul? It's Christ's work. How has he done it? By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Christ has accomplished his work through Paul's preaching, teaching, and writing in word, by word, (coughs) through his various actions, all kinds of deeds that Paul has done, and through miracles, signs and wonders together, uh, getting at the idea of miracles. Signs are showing forth. And then, of course, we get this idea of wonders, signs and wonders. Wonders are leaving the people in a state of wonder. They're called wonders because of the effect that they have on people. They leave people in a state of awe. All. all of this by the power of the Spirit of God. Now these signs and wonders, Paul elsewhere explains, are marks of true apostleship. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12 talks about it, but Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. So signs and wonders and mighty works, Paul says, are God's mechanism, God's means of showing forth apostolicity. That, that there is an apostle. It's, an, it's a, a validation, it's a stamp of approval on what is happening in apostolic ministry. It authenticates, it validates what is going on with the apostles. It's interesting that throughout the Bible, this language of Signs and Wonders concentrates around the two key points of redemptive history, around the Exodus and the ministry of Christ and His Apostles. We understand that because God is showing what he's doing. We have the the old covenant and we have the new covenant. We have these two massive points in redemptive history where God is, you understand it this way, just showering these two points in redemptive history with these things called signs and wonders. That's what's happening. And God has done that in the ministry of Paul, the apostle. God has authenticated, he's validated, he's shown forth the credibility of Paul's ministry through these works. So what has been the result of Christ's work through Paul? (coughs) What has been the result? The evangelization of the eastern Mediterranean. Paul says from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, He has fulfilled his ministry of the gospel of Christ. Christ, through Paul, has established churches from Jerusalem all the way up to or even into the region north of Macedonia, east of Italy. So if you understand uh, Macedonia and Greece, Macedonia, and then above that, you have uh, this area called Illyricum. And then you immediately go west and you're into the Italian peninsula once you've crossed over the Adriatic See, that's where Paul is talking about it, that Paul's ministry has extended all the way up above Greece into Illyricum. This is the breadth of Paul's apostolic ministry. This is what Paul's been doing. This is his previous work as an apostle, as one serving in this priestly ministry. So, Paul's been busy. But there's another reason he hasn't visited Rome quite yet. And that leads us to our final point as we finish up this morning, his pioneering way. So as he explains his apostolic ministry, he explains his piercing words, his previous work, and now we see his pioneering way. Look at verses 20 to 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. (coughs) Here, Paul describes himself as a pioneer. He brings the gospel to virgin territory. That is his manner of ministry, that's the way Paul operates. Of course, Paul will preach the gospel anywhere, to anybody. At any time. That was, Paul was a man of the gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's how he introduces himself at the very beginning of the letter. He is a gospel man, always with the gospel on his heart, on his mind, and on his lips. He's always sharing the gospel, but it is his ambition to do so where Christ has not already been named. That's his way of operating. That's his manner of working. Where Christ has already been named, he stays away from those places, and he goes to the places where Christ has not been named. And this could mean where Christ has not even been known. Christ is not even known about Or it could mean where Christ is not yet acknowledged as Lord. Where Christ is not yet worshipped. So there may be people there who know of Christ. They know of this Jesus of Nazareth who is called by some the Messiah. But they just have not come to worship him. There are no believers there. Either way, Paul's intention is to go there where Christ has not been named. For Paul, this involved planting churches in key urban centers around the Mediterranean. So Paul doesn't feel the burden to go to every single person and make sure that they hear the gospel. Paul's calling is to go to these various urban centers. So we see him ministering in all these different places in Ephesus, and Thessalonica. We see him uh, ministering in Athens. We see all these these different cities, these urban centers... And then the gospel from those places would then spread out into the surrounding areas. That's what Paul had been up to. That was Paul's approach. And it's interesting here that Paul doesn't just lay this out as a mere approach among many. It's not as though Paul was sitting there scratching his head one day and he just said, you know, I think I'm just going to go to the unreached, or I think I'm going to go to places where there has not been any gospel uh, witness, where Christ has not been named. It's not as though Paul just decides in and of himself that this is going to be his approach. Instead, he quotes from the Old Testament. It's interesting. He quotes from the Old Testament to suggest that his way of operating is actually the outworking of prophecy. He quotes from Isaiah 52, 15. As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul understands these words to be God's directive for him. Isn't that amazing? that Paul appropriates these words from Isaiah to give him, to give Paul himself marching orders for how it is he is to go about his apostolic ministry in this Mediterranean world. This Paul sees as a directive to him. And that's why he wants to go to Rome. Not to build there, but to launch out from there to Spain. And that's what we're going to see. We haven't talked a lot about that. Uh, I mentioned that in chapter 1. But isn't it interesting to see that Paul has written this entire letter of Romans. One that throughout church history has played such a key role. He's explained thoroughly his gospel. But what is Paul preoccupied with? Paul is writing this gospel, this description of the gospel. He's writing these words and he's giving them to the Romans And he has this in mind. He has this one ambition. I got to get to Spain. I got to get to Spain. They haven't heard the gospel. And there are peoples there who need to bow to King Jesus. There are peoples in Spain who need to fall on their faces before the lion of the tribe of Judah. So he's writing Romans thinking of Spain. Do you see how much mission drove the apostle, not to just sit around and, 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 and just think about theology. Theology is for mission. All the truth that Paul has poured out of his heart, all the truth he's poured out of his pen is so that the gospel may continue to spread and peoples may continue to bow before the descendant of Judah. That's what Paul, at the end of Romans, is trying to explain that he is about. So, as we finish this morning, what does all of this tell us? Just a couple things here in closing. All ministry is a gift from God to be directed back to God. We're all in the church, we're all ministering. It's a gift. Direct it back to Him in praise. And secondly, our ministries, our work for the Lord, involves God's ends, God's means, and God's way. We don't have the right to come up with our own goal, our own end. We don't have the right to come up with our own means to empower ourselves to do what God wants us to do. And God has already told us His way. Look, the elders of this church don't have the job of coming up with how we're going to do church. Who in the world are we? We don't have that job. That job's already been done for us. God has told us in his word how we are to do church. Our job is to obey him. Our job as elders is only this. That we carry out what God has already spoken to be the case. What God has already commanded us to do. God's ends, God's means, and God's way. We don't just sit around and come up with how we think it ought to be done. Five, five dudes. No. It's the Lord's way. It's his manner of operation. And so pray for us. Pray that God would give us insight into his word, that God would give us commitment to his word, saturate our conversations, our prayers, and our time with his word in order that we, as those who have been tasked with leading this congregation, would be able to pursue God's purposes with his help and in the way that he's called us to do it. What are his purposes? How is he providing what we need? And how does he want it carried out? That's our question. Individually and as a local church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these precious words that you've given us today to chew on, to grow from. We ask you, Father, that you would help us as believers to live in accordance with your way to minister for your glory and so that people would come to bow before Christ. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that you have tasked us as Christians with uh, so many different kinds of work within the local church. And Lord, as, as elders, and deacons, and ministry leaders, and as those involved in all kinds of ministries here, Father, help us to do our work, uh, as Paul did, out of a deep sense of grace, out of a deep sense that we do not deserve to be doing any of these things, and that we would direct them to you in praise. Father, we thank you for this gospel that has gone out to the Gentiles. We, uh, most of us uh, Gentiles, uh, some perhaps with a Jewish lineage, Jewish uh, heritage, but many, most of us Gentiles, Lord, whose ancestors uh, were, as you wrote through Paul to the Ephesians, <coughs> without hope and without God in the world. Lord, we thank you that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that we've become members of the household of God, that we've been grafted in to this natural olive tree. <clears throat> Father, we look forward to the day when you will bring Israel back in uh, as a a collective whole. Uh, We look forward to the day when Christ will return, when all will be remade. And we look forward to the day when we together will bow before this Christ and we will see him as he is. We will see him face to face in all of his manifold splendor beyond our imagination. And we will see the glory of his great love. And we will enjoy him forever. We thank you for the gospel. <clears throat> we thank you that it has come our way by your grace, by your spirit. Would we see to it insofar as we can that it goes out to others. To those who have never heard of this Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.